0: Testing 123, this is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode the Elder Tad Callister five minute video on his case for the Book of Mormon. Tonight, I am pleased to have with me, once again, Bill Real.
1: I am uh, excited to be here, RFM. I'm uh, looking forward to kind of having this conversation and diving into this longer than 5 minutes but really short talk and we'll see if we can cover it in a in a reasonable amount
0: of time. Yeah, I'm guessing maybe 2 hours if we keep our comments to a minimum. <laughs> I kind of think the same. So, Tad Callister is a general authority in the Church in the LDS Church and he has written a number of books that have had some exposure, some influence. I'd say he's pretty well known for his writings. One of his books that's come out relatively recently is called The Case for the Book of Mormon, in which he seeks to prove the Book of Mormon is true, and by true, I mean historical. He has, since that time, synopsized those elements, and I'm sure he's just really cramming everything down into a five-minute video. I know he's not going over it in the detail. He goes over it in his book, but he does a five-minute fireside, which... My understanding is, Bill, this is like a series that the church is putting forward of five-minute firesides on different subjects. And his five-minute fireside, which can be found on YouTube, is called the case for the Book of Mormon. And as you hinted at, Bill, it's really not a five-minute fireside. It ends up clocking it at nine minutes. So it's a nine-minute, five-minute fireside.
1: Yeah, so it he already... Uh, has been dishonest with me from the very beginning telling me that I was only going to have to spend five minutes on listening to him and it ended up being almost twice that much but still short like I said relatively speaking.
0: Well I have to cut him some slack because I know if I were doing a five minute fireside it would end up being a lot longer than nine minutes. Yeah probably me too. Mine would be the two hour five minute fireside. And it seems to be any time you take a thing that the church
1: does or says, it, it does take time to deconstruct it, to show the errors in the argument, to make an argument for where the data actually goes. And so when you and I do these projects, and people seem to love them, when you and I do these projects, it, it seems to not matter how short something is, it probably takes um maybe seven to 10 times as much time to deconstruct what's being said or taught uh, in order to to show kind of the weakness in that argument and to show where the data really goes.
0: Yes, there have been a number of people who have reached out to me and to you and asked us if we would do an analysis of this particular five-minute fireside by Tad Callister. And so we want to be responsive to that. We want to do this tonight. And I think it will take us a while, so we'll probably get right to it here. I will say, though, that it's a good thing, I think, that he speaks mainly in generalities in this five-minute fireside because it allows us to respond in generalities as well. There's a great deal that can be learned from speaking about the generalities, the overview, the 20,000-foot view of things that are being said by apologists for the church that cannot be covered if you're talking about the actual individual elements of the argument. And that's what I want to focus on tonight. It's more looking at the forest than at the individual tree. Sometimes we get caught up in the tree so much we can't see the forest. And what I want to try and do tonight is see if we can get a good view of this forest of Mormon apologetics as it relates to the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to do this. All right, let's go with his very opening line. Do you have
2: that ready to play, Bill? Yeah, as you say, roll the tape. If you're struggling with a testimony of the Book of Mormon or want to strengthen that testimony, this message is for you. I'm Tad R. Collister, and this is my 5-Minute Fireside. Today, I'm going to talk about a case for the Book of Mormon. Several years ago, my friend left the church. Among other things, he couldn't accept the Book of Mormon to be true. Once you leave this church, however, it ruins you for any other church because you just know too much. And so it happened with my friend. Once he had ended his search for the true church and couldn't find it, he decided to reinvestigate our church with an open mind. After he had done so, he sent me this letter. One day while reading the Book of Mormon, I paused and knelt down and gave a heartfelt prayer and felt resoundingly that Heavenly Father whispered to my spirit that the Church and the Book of Mormon were definitely true. He then added this profound thought. Initially, I wanted the Book of Mormon to be proven to me historically, geographically, linguistically, and culturally. But when I changed my focus to what it teaches about the gospel of Jesus Christ and His saving mission, I began to gain a testimony of its truthfulness and so he did. At the time he made this observation, he was serving as the Elder Scorn President in his ward.
0: Okay, the first thing I have to say is, apparently, I've been mispronouncing his name. I've been saying Elder Callister, but when he says his name, he says Elder Collister. So I would hate for Elder Collister to hear that I've mispronounced his name and then to go in a tirade and make fun of my name on another YouTube video. (laughs) So, that, that seems to have happened before, right? I know, and... This was just as intentional when I mispronounced Elder Callister's name as Callister as any mispronunciation of any other name may have been prior to this. I just want to assure you about that.
1: Yeah, and I think that's an Irish name. And those Irish, they can get really upset about that kind of stuff. So,
0: <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, he opens up, Elder Callister <clears throat> opens up uh, his five-minute fireside by telling the story about a friend of his who had been a member of the church and who had left the church. Now, he doesn't actually say this next part, but it's obvious that he left it over historical reasons. In other words, over criticisms or problems with the Book of Mormon, where what it claims to be history in the ancient Americas does not line up very well with the facts that we know them about ancient America. Uh, He talks about He had wanted the the church to be proven or the Book of Mormon to be proven historically, geographically, linguistically, and culturally. And apparently that wasn't working for him. That was the problem he was having with the Book of Mormon was that it was not being proven. In fact, it was being proven the other way as perhaps not historical by history, geography, linguistics, and culture. And so he shifts over to the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost is always the most important thing. Whenever you hear an apologist talk, they're going to give the caveat at the outset or at the end or someplace along the line that in spite of how impressive these arguments may be, the ultimate witness is the Holy Ghost. And that's the really important thing. Now, when I stop and I think about that, Bill, really, if all of the evidence lined up for the Book of Mormon the way we would expect it to if the Book of Mormon were actually a historical record of a historical group of people that actually lived historically in the ancient Americas, well, we wouldn't need any Holy Ghost beyond that. It would be proven simply historically, geographically, linguistically, and culturally just like so many other civilizations that have existed anciently in different parts of the world. Really what ends up happening, I'm afraid, is that the Holy Ghost comes in as a means of covering up, smoothing out, taking care of, putting to the side all the instances where the Book of Mormon does not line up with the evidence. So we've got some pieces of evidence that the Book of Mormon lines up with, and that's okay to take into account intellectually, but all the other places where it doesn't line up, that's where the Holy Ghost comes in to save the day. Your thoughts.
1: So, a couple of things. First, he talks about his friend leaving, and somebody else did this before RFM. Was it was Elder Runland or Elder Corbridge? One of those guys in something we tackled. They told us about how they had a friend who left the church, and they didn't want to tell us exactly what the reasons were that their friend left.
0: Um, Do you remember what that was? You know, I don't, but it is a common motif. For all I know, it's the same friend.
1: Yeah, it seems like the leaders of the church have a lot of friends leaving the church over historical issues. That was my point to be made there. The second thing is this idea that uh, Elder Collister seems to want to have it both ways, and you started to kind of hit on this. In the beginning of this, he's talking about his friend, and his friend expected the Book of Mormon to hold up in these secular ways. And Elder Collister seems to indicate that we should not expect that. That's not the reality. And that he had to essentially get his friend pointed in the right direction by getting him to deal with the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon using spiritual means, prayer and the Holy Ghost. So he, in the beginning here, seems to set the standard that we're not going to find the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon by secular means. And in fact, as you point out, secular means are actually going to work against belief in the Book of Mormon. And then he's going to spend the rest of this fireside telling us the opposite message, which is there is evidence in all of these directions. I find him playing both sides of that interesting. He almost seems to set up the listener to say, look, pray about it. Trust that answer. Don't go looking for secular stuff because that's going to hurt your testimony. But Let me throw some softball secular stuff at you that builds your testimony of the Book of Mormon. But don't look into it too deeply because that's going to hurt your testimony. The other thing is this reminded me of the one we did with Elder Corbridge, where you called it the Corbridge Maneuver, uh, an old play on a Star Trek episode in the original version of Star Trek. And um, what I found interesting is Elder Corbridge in that talk mentions this idea of scientific Uh, Method of finding truth, the analytical method of finding truth, and the academic method of finding truth. And Elder Corbridge in that talk seemed to indicate that first we need to use spiritual means, and then we only use those other three modes to back up that spiritual answer. I think Elder Collister here is doing the same thing without using all these big terms, and as you point out, staying more general. Uh, But I just want to make note that leadership of the church always seems to be pointing. Those who have questions or, or those they want to never have questions to relying on spiritual answers and recognizing that any secular means can only be used to boost that spiritual answer. And if they're used on their own, they seem to depreciate
0: one's testimony Of the restored gospel. I think that's a good point. Something else that occurs to me is the line that Elder Collister says, where once you've been a member of this church, the LDS church, he says, it ruins you for any other church because you just know too much. Now, when I hear that line, the first thing I know is that that's not true. All right. When you've been a member of this church, it doesn't ruin you for any other church. There are certain instances where it does ruin you for any other church, and I would disagree with him about the reason that it ruins you for any other church, but I happen to know people who have left the LDS Church and have gone on to become believers in other faith traditions. In fact, there's a couple that I know, the Bucks, Cal and Claudia Buck, that's Buck with a B, who left the LDS Church, they became evangelical Christians, they're still very faithful, very happy in their new faith, and I remember them telling me, shortly after they left the LDS church, it was like a huge burden had been lifted from their shoulders with all the requirements and commandments that were mandated upon them by the LDS church versus the grace that they found abundant in their new church. So the first thing is being a member of the LDS church does not, repeat not, Elder Collister, ruin you for any other church. The second thing is that this reminds me of something that You know, you might hear from a woman, and forgive me for being sexist, I'm a guy, so I look at this in terms of a woman, it could equally apply to a guy. But I think of this in terms of a woman who thinks she is so beautiful and so incredible and God's gift to mankind. She's in some kind of relationship with a guy, she's got a boyfriend, the boyfriend leaves her and she proclaims, well, I've ruined him for any other woman. Well, what would we think of a woman who said something like that? Well, we might think that she's sort of egotistical and full of herself and probably not terribly in touch with reality because this guy leaves her, goes out and finds another girlfriend and you know is now happy in a new relationship. So it says something to me about Elder Callister as a representative of the church saying this about the church, that he is so in that he cannot envision a person who is a member of the church leaving the LDS church and going out and finding a different church and being happy in it. Finally, Bill, finally, there are many instances, and I think that I'm probably one of them where the LDS Church has ruined me for any other church, but the reason it's ruined me is not because the LDS Church is so fantastic. It's because my studies in church history have opened my eyes to a number of things that end up coloring how I view other faith traditions. For example, my study of church history has shown me how quickly miracle stories can be fabricated, generated, repeated, and then become accepted within a community as something that actually happened. One obvious example would be the story about the transfiguration of Brigham Young in August of 1844, when we have stories about people saying, oh, he was transfigured into Joseph Smith, he looked like Joseph Smith, he sounded like Joseph Smith. But then we find out that all of these recollections start occurring many years after the fact and that people who actually took down notes, contemporaneous notes of the meeting, as it happened or shortly thereafter, don't mention anything about seeing a transfiguration. So it appears that miracle stories can be created in short order and then come to be accepted by the religious faith very shortly after the event. By shortly, I mean 10, 20 years after the event. And then it becomes repeated to the point where it becomes accepted as something that actually happened. On the other side of that, we have a Podcast that I did recently about some stories told by President Russell M. Nelson, where he has apparently taken rather pedestrian events that were non miraculous and now changed them up and added miraculous facts to them in order to make them miraculous stories. And we see this happening in real time, or at least I see this happening in real time. So when I see these kinds of things happening and I read the New Testament, or other religious documents from other faith traditions that purport to describe miracles happening, I'm only too aware of how easy it is to generate those things and how those things can become accepted and written down and then believed to be something that actually historically happened when that is not the case. So in that sense, yes, Mormonism does ruin many members, including yours truly, for any other church. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, just to reiterate maybe what you're saying in a different way, kind of sharing my own story, um, I, I think that it's a mixed bag. I think some people are able to move on to other religious systems. Take the Snufferite movement, for instance. There are people who are disenfranchised with LDS Mormonism, and they move into another version of Mormonism. That happens every day. There are people who leave Mormonism and move on to another Christian denomination, There are people who leave Mormonism who go to some other faith altogether outside of Christianity, whether it's um, taking up Buddhism or some other type of Eastern religion or going into some other practice uh, of spirituality that has maybe not necessarily a belief system to it, like meditation or other things like that. But I'm like you. I'm ruined uh, for religion, and it's along the same lines of what you spoke about, which is That as I watched Mormonism up close and deconstructed not just its history, but all of its mechanisms and the way in which it encourages its members to be loyal and to believe, as I started to distance myself from Mormonism and give other churches a try, I went to the community of Christ for a little while and tried to give them a shot. They're a much softer, more inclusive version of Mormonism. Uh, and I couldn't do it because I saw the same type of religiosity just at a softer level, and I would I had already determined I didn't want to do that again. And so, like you, uh Mormonism ruined me not because as it was so beautiful, but because it amplifies the mechanisms that religions use generally, and it allowed me to almost in a sense, be an expert at those mechanisms and see them everywhere else in other religious systems, and I just wanted nothing to do with it.
0: Hmm, I understand what you're saying 100%. So I think that at this point, I have to push back gently against Elder Collister's comment that once you've been a member of this church, it ruins you. For any other church, because you know too much, I think that is demonstrably false, but it certainly fits in with his position, the argument he's making, and this particular experience he's relating regarding his friend.
1: Uh, let me just say one other thing. He seems to be pointing to Elder Ballard's Where Will You Go? In other words, once you give up on Mormonism, you, you'll ha- you'll be so disappointed with everything else that you're going to be miserable. You might as well stay here. And it seems to play off of that Where Will You Go?
2: Well, the ultimate witness of the Book of Mormon is always the Spirit, I would like to focus for a few moments on another evidence of its truthfulness, its language. Its language has a divine eloquence that appeals to both our intellect and our heart. So moved are we that sometimes we memorize scriptures or highlight our scriptures, or sometimes we even place them on our refrigerator doors. These verses become our companions in times of need and reflection. The Book of Mormon is filled with golden nuggets. For a few moments, I'd like to share some of them with you. So at this point, Elder Collister is now going to shift to
0: the language of the Book of Mormon and the things that it says, and he's gonna talk about three specific passages in the Book of Mormon that he finds these meaningful, that he finds them inspirational, that resonate with him on some level. Now, the first thing I wanna say is I am very encouraged by this turn in his fireside to the language of the Book of Mormon because this is something that's very important to me personally and has been part of my own personal journey. I think that there are things in the Book of Mormon that resonate with me and there are things that are going to resonate with other people that may not resonate with me and there are things that may resonate with me at one time in my life that don't resonate with me at another and vice versa. So the Book of Mormon does have inspirational, Passages in it. That's number one. He's going to go through those and we'll comment about those in a second. Here's the thing though, Bill. About 10 years ago, I decided that I was going to start studying world literature, classical literature. And this really started in earnest in 2009 when I started reading the complete works of William Shakespeare. I had never done that. I thought, I really need to do that. I set myself a task. It only took me a little over two years to work my way through it because I am not a quick reader. And Shakespeare, you can get bogged down really quick in Shakespeare, believe me. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this. I will save this for another fireside, but I'm glad that Elder Collister brought it up because it allows me to make a few comments that I've been meaning to make for a long time on the podcast, but I sort of haven't had the ability to articulate it fully. Here's the deal. In world literature, what makes it world literature is the fact that there are stories and passages that resonate with a majority or a big number, a large number of people, right? That's why they become classics and they are inspirational. They resonate with me every bit as much and a lot of times more so than passages in the Book of Mormon. So when you start looking at the language of the Book of Mormon as inspirational, and by doing that, you define it as scripture that is given by inspiration, what it does for me, Bill, and what's, what it's done over the past 10 years is it has opened the floodgates to looking at other works of literature, ancient, modern, everything in between, as inspired and using that same definition as Scripture. So what I have come to do is to define scripture is passages or stories that resonate with me personally while fully recognizing they may not resonate with somebody else or things that uh, don't resonate with me may resonate with somebody else. Scripture becomes a very subjective and a very personal type of thing. And I have collected a number of passages. I have a little book, which is a blank book. It's like a journal type book. Some might call it a letter book. That I have purchased. And when something strikes me as I'm reading through literature, I will write it down because I want to preserve it. I'll mark it up in the book just as I would have in the scriptures. I'll mark it up in the book. I may make notes in the margin. And those things stay with me. Those are things that I consider to be scripture. Okay, so having said that, I consider scripture to be something much larger than just the canonized works. And in fact, there's a definition of scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants that allows for that. It says anything that a man speaks when moved upon by the power of the Holy Ghost is scripture. So we have this very open ended idea of scripture. What that does is it totally opens up the definition of scripture to me. And I can recognize scripture in many places other than the standard works. But what this new definition of scripture does for me, which is actually where Elder Collister is starting to lead with this, I think he's gonna come up short before he ever gets to this, but this is where I went down the same path a number of years ago where he's heading, is that when I define scripture as something that inspires me, that is why I can say that the Book of Mormon is scripture. I consider the Book of Mormon to be scripture even though I think that there is little to know evidence that it is historically accurate or that it actually describes the adventures of an ancient people from Jerusalem who came over to the Americas and lived and moved and had their being for a thousand years. I define the Book of Mormon, or I consider it scripture, but not in the same way that most Latter-day Saints would consider it to be scripture and certainly not in the way that I considered it scripture when I was a true believing Mormon. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, the same thing. As you point out, you're talking about literature out in the world that has no level of religiousness to it, no level of religiosity to it. And and so, for instance, reading J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, or reading uh, Edgar Allan Poe, or reading some um, Mark Twain book, and finding great beauty and inspiration in it, I can even stay in religion. If I go to the Bhagavad Gita, which is included in a larger text called the Mahabharata, or if I look at the Quran, which I've read bits and pieces of, um, I spent a summer, maybe three or four years ago, on my day off every week, I would clean out my garage, or I would go mow the backyard, and I would listen to the Bhagavad Gita on, a, on an audio file. And the stories were uh, absurd in terms of historicity, talking deer and magic spells, but the, the language And the lessons for for humanity within that book was beautiful, inspiring, definitely scripture to me. Uh, and, And I think, as you're pointing out, Elder Collister wants to have it both ways again. He wants to, on one hand, say, look, scripture, you can tell the difference in scripture. It gives you an emotional feeling. You can feel the Holy Ghost. It inspires you. And then on the other hand, he wants to impose that there's some level of historicity that also needs to be assigned to it. And I think for any healthy Latter-day Saint, you have to be able to parse those two out. In other words, LDS text, as well as any religious text out in the world, as well as any other uh, fictional text that's imposed as fiction, uh, we ought to have space to find it inspiring and emotional and some spiritual sense to it without automatically having to assign historicity. The Bhagavad Gita is an inspiring text for millions of people. That doesn't mean it's historical. Those people may use a different language, but but what they would be conveying is, I feel the Holy Ghost when I read that text. Feeling the Holy Ghost doesn't make the document historical, and I wish the Church did a better job of parsing those things out so that people could find inspiring lessons in the Book of Mormon without feeling like every sentence is a historical event being conveyed, and hence everything has to be taken absolutely without any ability to set any piece of it off to the
0: side. Right. And this can get very deep very fast, and we want to move on with uh, Elder Collister's Five Minute Fireside. But I do want to say that along these lines, truth is something that is much more significant, to me at least, and usually to writers of what I consider to be scripture, whether it be canonized or in other books of literature. Truth is something that is different than history or historical facts. Truth goes deeper than that. I mean, how many of us have read a a history book and felt the spirit? Well, very few of us, at least I never have. So history, things that are actually factual, are rarely spiritual in the sense of resonating with me as a human being and feeling some kind of connection either to humanity or perhaps something divine in humanity or outside of humanity. This very fact has been recognized by a number of authors, including Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, which is one of those works of scripture, as I would define it now. And in it, he's talking about a map, like a chart for an ocean and for islands And what he says is this. He says, he's talking about a specific place. I can't remember where the place is, but he says, it is not down on any map. True places never are. Yeah, it's beautiful.
1: I think, again, we have to separate historicity from feeling inspired and what we would call feeling the Holy Ghost.
0: Yes, I agree. So, And once again, I think that Elder Collister, he is starting to head down that path that I headed down. And I went further than I'm sure he would feel comfortable going. And I don't want to try and impute this to him because I don't think that he would go that far. Maybe he would and maybe he's just not comfortable doing it in this particular fireside for this particular audience. I don't know the man. But I wouldn't want to impute that to him when he's not actually saying that. What I am saying is that I started going down the very path that he is mentioning here by looking at The scripture, the language of the Book of Mormon, how it resonates with us and can resonate with us as an indication and as an evidence, as he's going to use it, of its divinity, of its inspiration. And all I'm saying is that once you go down that path, then you are starting toward where I have come to, which is opening the door to many, many, many different kinds of works being considered scripture and the Book of Mormon being considered scripture in the same way as these other books. Yep, absolutely. All right, enough of that. Let's go on now to the next part where he's gonna quote from 2 Nephi chapter 32, verse three.
2: Nephi taught in 2 Nephi 32, three, feast upon the words of Christ. For behold, the words of Christ will teach you all things that ye should do. I was puzzled when I first pondered this scripture. How could the Scriptures teach me all things that I should do? The Scriptures can teach us all things that we should do in two ways. One, they teach us the correct principles that can be applied in a multiplicity of circumstances. And secondly, as they read them, they invite the Spirit into our life, to help us apply those scriptures in specific situations in our
0: lives. I like how Elder Collister refers to 2 Nephi 32, three, and I am gonna respect the fact that that moves him, that he feels like that is scripture. It moves me too. I think that that is inspiring. The reason I want to comment on it is because I think that Elder Collister fundamentally misunderstands this passage from the Book of Mormon, which is not unusual because I think most Latter-day Saints fundamentally misunderstand it. I understood it the way Elder Collister has just said it for a long time. But what's going on with this passage? First off, if you read it in context, actually if you even just read the whole verse from which he's quoting, it's not talking about the Scriptures. It's talking about the words of Christ, right? So the immediate inclination is to say, well, the words of Christ must equal the scriptures. Therefore, we've got to feast upon the scriptures, which means we've got to read them all the time and they will tell us what we should do. But that's actually not what the passage is saying. It's not defining the words of Christ as a scripture. Instead, it's talking about the tongue of angels and it's talking about the Holy Ghost. If you just go back to verse two, do you not remember that I said unto you that after ye had received the Holy Ghost, ye could speak with the tongue of angels? And now how could you speak with the tongue of angels, save it were by the Holy Ghost? Angels speak. Now we're getting to verse 3, the part he doesn't quote. Angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. You see, the Book of Mormon actually even gives us the definition. It's using of the words of Christ. It is not the scriptures. Then it goes on to say, wherefore I said unto you, feast upon the words of Christ. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things that you should do. So here, what Elder Collister is doing is the very common error of taking the words of Christ, immediately assuming he knows it's talking about the scriptures, and interpreting it in a way that is contrary to the original intent, at least as I read it, of the author. What this ends up doing is taking our focus and putting it back in a discrete set of knowledge, which is what the Scriptures are, what's contained in the Scriptures. It is limiting us to the Scriptures. It's turning us back to the source that it's already from. Instead, what I think the Book of Mormon is saying It's not inward-reaching, it's outward-reaching, and it's saying the words of angels, the tongue of angels, they speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. That's what I'm talking about when I say the words of Christ. That's what you should feast on. We're talking about continued personal revelation and inspiration, separate and apart from the scriptures. Now, the scriptures may be inspiration received by people, other people that was written down, But that doesn't mean that we should be locked into the inspiration received by others, but that we are open to inspiration by the Holy Ghost, which is what we should be feasting upon, at least in this passage, not the inspiration received by other people. So I think he fundamentally misunderstands it. I understand why he misunderstands it, but I think the original intent of the author, whether it be Joseph Smith or some ancient Nephite, is actually talking about something that's much more enriching, ennobling, expansive than the interpretation that Elder Collister is giving. And once again, I think it falls into my theory and my perception about scripture being something that is vastly bigger than just the standard works.
1: I uh, I just want to add, a this took me into a thought, and I'll try to be quick. The reason why it's important to be able to parse out scriptures that are healthy and scriptures that are unhealthy, here you're pointing to a misinterpretation. This happens a lot In Scripture. If Scripture is not historical, if it's just human beings trying to connect us to the divine, and at times missing the mark, and at times getting it right, and the humans who then try to interpret it for us sometimes hit the mark, and sometimes they miss it. When we add a level of space for people to see something as non-historical, They now feel their own power inside them to parse out what is useful and what isn't. You gave an example of a leader misinterpreting, but there are times where the scriptures themselves are unhealthy. So Moroni 9.9 says, For behold, many of the daughters of the Lamanites have they taken prisoners, and after depriving them of that which was most dear and precious above all, which is chastity and virtue. The church has taken that scripture in the past and put it into its For Strength of Youth manual for the youth and essentially conveyed the idea that a, a female being sexually assaulted or raped would have her chastity or virtue taken from her. That is deeply unhealthy. When I began to see the Book of Mormon as possibly non-historical, I felt the strength within me, my own resolve, to be able to take that scripture and set it off to the side and say, look, that's not a healthy teaching. And I don't care if the church uses it or not. I'm not going to use it. And anytime I see another person use it, I'm going to raise my hand and I'm going to vocalize the unhealthiness. When we allow the church to see the Book of Mormon as historical, When there are deep issues with that being the case, members of the church feel a a need to accept all of it as a historical story and hence the teachings directly from God. And so there's this blanket acceptance of every single sentence in the book. And so when this scripture is said, members automatically go to, well, that's what God wanted us to hear, so it must be true. And we cause more trauma and hurt to people around us when we do that. So being able to parse it out and say, like, that scripture doesn't really hold up and I'm going to set it off to the side and I'm going to speak out against it anytime it's mentioned out loud, actually puts us in a healthier space to not cause hurt and trauma to people um, beyond what's already going to happen just by being a human being. And so I'm simply saying, like, you can see when you dive into scriptures, when you're willing to not take it literal, when you're willing to say, like, some of this is good and some of it isn't, there's a lot more ability to be healthy with inspirational text than when you accept it absolutely and impose every word as the mind and will of God.
0: I think that's an excellent point. And I think that even the scriptures in the Old Testament teach us that God, to whatever extent he or she or it exists, but is represented there, God wants us to stand up to God when God is getting out of line. God wants us to wrestle with him. God wants us to say, hey, look, you're, you want to kill all the Israelites that you've led out of Egypt? No, let me tell you why that's not a good idea and why you need to back off from that idea. And God listens. Or Abraham does a similar thing when God wants to destroy destroy the people of the city of the Plains, and Abraham keeps talking him out of it because Abraham doesn't think that's a good idea. The God that I read about in the Old Testament, at least, expects people to stand up to him and to contradict him when he's wrong. And I think the, uh, the passage you talked about is an excellent example of that. Even if you're a believing
1: Mormon, Mormonism teaches that a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such, and just because ink hit paper doesn't necessitate the need to accept across the board without any question that that prophet was speaking as a prophet. We, Even as a believing Mormon, we need to have space to say that Moroni was only speaking as Moroni, and Alma was only speaking as Alma. And Gordon B. Hinckley was only speaking as Gordon B. Hinckley, and Elder Nelson was only speaking as Elder Nelson, or President Nelson, for that matter. When we have the ability to disavow what those people say and to raise a hand to unhealthiness, we are a better community for it.
0: Yes, and sometimes God is only speaking as a man, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and even when, because God never really speaks, it's always a man saying, hey, God spoke and now I'm telling you what he said. And I'm simply suggesting that even if the church is true, that translation process has some deep errors to it.
0: Agreed. Are you ready to go on to the next of the three scriptures that Elder Collister quotes? Roll the tape.
2: Another scripture is Alma's insightful observation in Alma one five. The preaching of the word had a great... Tendency to lead the people to do that was which was just. Yea, it had had a more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else. What an astonishing truth, expressed in such a simple and poignant way, in a day and age when war was the solution to all problems. Alma presented what must have been a very naive solution to preach the Gospel. But his incredible mission, resulting in miraculous conversions, proved him right. Inherent in the Word of God is the power to transform lives from a warmonger to a peacemaker, from the natural man to a spiritual man, and from a sinner to a saint.
0: So there's Elder Collister's second scripture, which is Alma 31 verse 5. That is a very, very important scripture, I think, and I can understand why it resonates with Elder Collister. I think it resonates with a lot of people. And he talks about how the preaching of the gospel, instead of conducting open warfare on somebody else, that it seems like a naive solution. Now, here's what I want to mention about this, and I'll try and do it very quickly because it's a very interesting thing about the Book of Mormon. Back in 2012, I was engaged in some research on the Book of Mormon with Don Bradley. Now, this research ended up culminating in an article that was published in BYU Studies a few years later. But the main thing that I want to talk about, and the part that wasn't published, is that when you actually look at what the text of the Book of Mormon says, let me back up a second. We know that Alma. Book of Alma, longest book in the Book of Mormon, the first half is basically about preaching the gospel. The second half, or at least the second, the last third of the Book of Alma is all about warfare. It's the war chapters in the Book of Alma. And some people wonder why is there so much time and space devoted to warfare in the Book of Alma? Well, I can't say exactly why it is, But I can say that the interesting thing is is that the preaching of the word that's talked about in chapter 31 and verse 5, this is the preaching of the word of God to the Zoramites. And we all know the story. It has to do with the Rameumptom and Alma goes there with some other missionary companions and they preach the gospel and the poorer part of the Zoramites accept it. And the richer parts do not accept it. The thing is that the preaching of the word there is what leads directly to the massive warfare in the last chapters of the book of Alma. Here's what I mean by that. Once again, taking the 20,000-foot view, they preach the gospel, the poor Zoramites accept it, the rich Zoramites do not, the rich Zoramites who don't accept the gospel throw the poor Zoramite converts out of the land, and the poor Zoramite converts go over and they take up residence with the people of Ammon, who had been converted by the preaching of Ammon. And they were given their own special land, the land of Jershon. People in the land of Jershon say, hey, you can come and live with us. We're fine. We're all believers in Mormonism here. Well, what happens because of that is that the Zoramites get all frosted at the people of Ammon, who are now among the Nephites. They get frosted at the Nephites because they've done this. And what they do is they then stir up the Lamanites against the Nephites because of this, what they perceive as a huge slap in the face to them. And it is that that causes and leads to, in a direct line of consequence, all the bloody warfare in the last part of the book of Alma. So this is actually a very neat twist in the the Book of Mormon, talking about how preaching is better than warfare, but to have a narrative that actually shows that it is the preaching that leads to the warfare anyway. I can't say whether this is intentional on the part of the author of the Book of Mormon, but it's a very neat and ironic twist in the narrative if you're there to see it. So even though Elder Collister calls it a naive solution to preach the gospel, to your enemies instead of conduct warfare on them. The funny thing about the Book of Mormon is, is that it ends up leading to the warfare that they were trying to avoid in the first place. The The only
1: point I want to make is just a connection back to Mormonism, which is that the, here's this story about trying to use the gospel to have conversations with your enemy. And, and I think you see this often in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon prophets are always reaching out and having conversations trying to convert others, and trying to teach. And I find it strange that in LDS Mormonism, we're always dealing with church PR, and we rarely have prophets actually extending a voice to their critics, extending a conversation, extending a chance to sit at the table and and to talk about some of these issues. It seems as though LDS leaders want to stay as far away from those conversations as possible, and it, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to note kind of the difference between it and the Book of Mormon, but it's kind of a side tangent, so that's all I've got there.
0: Okay, well, let me go ahead and say, and let me make this clear because I'm hinting at it, but I haven't been totally clear about it, so I'll try and be pellucid. It is a fine thing, what Elder Collister is doing, is taking different proof texts or different discrete texts from the Book of Mormon and finding value in them. That is totally legitimate, and I'm not trying to detract from that. What I am saying is that sometimes if you dig deeper and look at the Book of Mormon narrative as a whole to put in context those individual proof texts, sometimes they run much deeper and give much more significant messages, at least to me, than if you just consider it in isolation. And I've got to tell you something, Bill. I think it says something remarkable about the Book of Mormon, regardless of its provenance or where it comes from or who wrote it. I think it says something remarkable about the Book of Mormon that you can actually engage in that kind of textual analysis that I just did, not only on the surface, but also deeper below the surface. There is meaning there, and there are lessons that resonate at least with me.
2: And the final example I'd like to share is from Ether chapter 12, verse 27. Who of us have not been comforted and reassured by these words of the Lord to Moroni, who felt an overwhelming weakness in his lack of writing skills? Quote, I give unto men weakness, that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. When our daughter was in the third grade, she received her report card with a check mark under handwriting for not good. She was uh, distraught and crying. And finally, this scripture came to us as parents. We read it to her. We asked her if she believed it. And she said that she did. She made a copy of it. We put it in her room. We gave her a blessing. And, uh, but she knew that she would have to work hard every day. Several years passed, it was sixth grade graduation, and to our total surprise, they gave certificates to the five finest handwriters in the school, one of them, Angela Collister. That scripture became, for her, a hallmark, a hope, and a guide for the rest of her life.
1: So with what Elder Callister does in these three examples that you have talked about, I think it's a beautiful thing when Mormonism says, look, here is our scriptural canon. And and if we can just set historicity off to the side for a moment, here's our scriptural canon. Here are the inspiring scriptures that we are picking out, and they help us to be better humans. When I was a believing Latter-day Saint, this scripture in Ether was deeply important to me. It was one of the ones I held close to my heart. Because you had this idea that all of us humans have weaknesses. We've got flaws. We have this uh, fight inside us to do the right thing and also do the wrong thing at the very same time. And I think it's a beautiful thing that his daughter takes this inspiring scripture and says, look, I have a weakness. It's my handwriting. And I'm going to work really hard, and I'm going to recognize that God can help me be better at handwriting. Um, and so the family does this spiritual exercise, and this daughter puts lots of work in. And I know, as now that I've deconstructed Mormonism, I know the secret to her having gotten better is the practice. But I think her feeling like God is, at, is in charge and is assisting her is a beautiful thing that helps a lot of human beings to perform and be better and to make serious changes to behaviors that humans want to improve. And so I want to honor, like, when we use scriptures in this way, I think it's powerful, and I think for a lot of humans, it's a it's a positive. And I wish that we could simply stop there. Just because I take a scripture in the Bhagavad Gita— and it helps me to be a better human being doesn't make the Bhagavad Gita historical. And you're going to see here as Elder Collister gets ready to move into the Book of Mormon being historical, and he starts to make that argument again, you're going to sense like he has no ability to parse these two things out. And I want to say, like, when we use scriptures as motivation to be better human beings, without those scriptures having to be attached to historicity... I think we do something that's beautiful and powerful. And I want to add, though, I understand the predicament that the church is in. When we relinquish historicity, we relinquish to some degree the power that these scriptures can have in the mind and heart of someone who is at a lower stage of development, who needs structure, who's black and white thinking who has a level of rigidity and needs boundaries and rules. When they let go of historicity, they suddenly see it as having no value. And so what we as a church have to do, and I still say we because I'm still Mormon, even though I'm not, what we have to do is start to help Latter-day Saints to make the transition into utilizing wisdom, whether it's fiction or non-fiction, Finding truth, as you pointed out, RFM, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, and using that the way developed human beings do in becoming better human beings.
0: Insightful as always, Bill. I think those are great comments. My response to this was a little bit snarkier on this one, mainly because it's fascinating to me that Elder Collister Talks about his daughter, the handwriting. It's a nice story. He talks about the fact that they showed her the scripture, they gave her a blessing, they put the scripture up on the wall. But he does have to add the fact that she knew she would have to work hard every day. So what I'm left with is the fact that here's a girl who needs to work on her handwriting. She recognizes it. She's embarrassed by something that happens as a result of it. And she commits to work hard on her handwriting every day. She works hard on her handwriting every day. And lo and behold, wonder of wonders, several years later at her sixth grade graduation, her handwriting has improved. That's what I get from the story. And if you took away the scripture, if you took away the blessing, if you took away all these other spiritual things and you just have a girl who realizes she needs to work on her handwriting, she works on her handwriting, she works hard on her handwriting, she works every day on her handwriting, and lo and behold, her handwriting improves. That doesn't seem to require any of the other spiritual components. In other words, that story would have turned out exactly the way as it's related, even without the scripture, even without the blessing, even without all these other spiritual elements to it.
1: Yeah, and I I would want to push back just a touch, which is to say that I think many Latter-day Saints who are living their lives at a literal level, at a, at a historical level with the, with the restored church, with the Book of Mormon, with other scriptural canon, I, I think some of those members would never go the next step to just say, I have bad handwriting, I'm going to put tons of practice in, and I'm going to get better. Instead, this false belief In a non-fictional text, but believing, I'm sorry, this false belief in a fictional text, believing it's non-fiction, believing it's true. Props, I think, gives the encouragement and the uh, motivation for some members of the church to try these things of improvement and to find successes giving credit to God and to see supernatural God magic where there isn't. And maybe they would have never gone through the exercise to begin with. In other words, if the Collisters simply went to their daughter and said, you have bad handwriting, if you practiced a lot, it would get better. And you take God completely out of the formula, whether God's real or not. Take God completely out of the formula. I doubt that little girl puts the time and energy into getting better. And so I'm simply offering that sometimes a false belief prompts us and encourages us To do the work necessary to see some kind of supernatural result where there isn't one.
0: Right. Um, I appreciate those insights and that pushback. I will push back against your pushback just a little bit because it's fascinating to me that actually this story does not comport with what the scripture that is cited exhorts. What I mean is the scripture doesn't say if you've got a weakness, work real hard on it and it will get better. What the scripture says is, if you have a weakness, have faith in Christ, and God will make it better. So it seems to take away the supernatural aspect that is contained in the scripture of improvement or strength, whatever that means, becoming strong, weak things becoming strong through faith in Christ, and now taking it to mean something else, which is faith in Christ now somehow equates work real hard on it. And then the faith in Christ will somehow uh, make that work better than it would have been by itself. The last thing I want to say here, though, is that in this last scripture, I get a little bit uncomfortable when we're talking about passages in the Book of Mormon that indicate, at least for Elder Collister and his daughter, the divinity of the Book of Mormon, when actually, in this case at least, this passage is a recapitulation and a rephrasing of another passage in the New Testament So when it says, make weak things become strong unto them, this is a rephrasing of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And there, we generally as Mormons, we know about it because at the beginning it talks about, I know a man caught up into the third heaven, and we use that as a proof text for uh, the three degrees of glory. Well, this is the boasting chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul boasts about the different things that he has experienced. And then in verse 9 and 10, see if this sounds familiar. Now it's not an exact borrowing, it's not a plagiarism, but I think you'll be able to see at least an intertextuality, or as we are pleased to call it nowadays, or a dependence on this passage. Verses 9 and 10, and he said unto me, this is God, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, you can go on to verse 10, where it recapitulates that again, and it says, For when I am weak, then am I strong at the end of that. So you can see that there seems to be a dependence, or at least a striking similarity, between this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and the same passage that was just quoted by Elder Callister in the book of Ether, um, coincidentally, chapter 12, as it would be. And that's an interesting thing that that's a coincidence, okay? Because I have no reason to think that the chapter 12 in both books is nothing but a coincidence. We're going to get more into coincidences later and the fact that they do happen and that those coincidences don't necessarily mean anything, the fact that they're in the same chapters. But there's a definite relationship between the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and the passage in Ether chapter 12. So all I'm saying about this is this. Elder Collister is using this passage from the Book of Mormon to show the divinity of the Book of Mormon. I think that becomes questionable when the passage he's quoting in the Book of Mormon, this particular passage from Ether, is actually a rephrasing from the New Testament. So it seems to me that it may more show that the New Testament is inspired, or Scripture, than it does the Book of Mormon that paraphrases it. Your thoughts?
1: Right. One viable option that is more than reasonable is that the author of this scripture in the Book of Mormon is relying upon the teaching in the New Testament and is simply reiterating that in a new way. I also want to agree with you that he's using this scripture to display how his daughter got better at handwriting. And what the scripture seems to be saying, both in uh, chapter 12 of Corinthians, as well as uh, this uh, scripture in Ether, is that in the middle of being flawed and weak and and messing up and making mistakes and giving into the lust of your heart or the or your or your shadows or whatever it is that your is your unhealthy side, that the supernatural? Uh, in other words, when Paul gives the the uh, sermon of the unknown God, Paul in his weakness, or Moses having this speech impediment. Um, or Abraham, whatever his weaknesses were, that when Christ shows up working through these people, when God shows up working through his servants, that you can tell a distinct difference. In other words, if this little girl had horrible handwriting, but when the moment called for it, she prayed and her handwriting was perfect. And then 10 minutes later, she went back to poor handwriting. Then all of a sudden Christ could be seen through that weakness, his strength, would be manifest in that weakness. And so as you're pointing out, they're using that scripture the wrong way. I'm just simply noting that using scriptures the wrong way seems to empower a lot of people to make self-improvement. And on some level, we ought to at least express some gratitude for the good that does happen. Amen,
0: brother. Preach it. That's all I've got. (laughs) Okay. So now we've got to go on to this next part of the Five Minute Fireside. We're actually more than five minutes into the Five Minute Fireside, and Elder Collister is going to pivot and go to a new set of things that he believes shows the Book of Mormon to be true, and by true I mean historical. Are you ready for that, Bill?
2: Let's do it. I think most of us would be happy in a lifetime if we produced two or three memorable phrases that were savored by our family and friends. The burning question then becomes, how did Joseph Smith, with his lack of education, in his early 20s, and unable to write a coherent letter as testified to by his wife, write these memorable phrases that touched the lives of millions? The answer, he didn't. They came from God, exactly as Joseph testified.
0: Okay, so really quick here, I have to comment on what he said here because now he is trying to make the point that the Book of Mormon containing these passages that he has just talked about and other passages that resonate with us, this is simply beyond the capacity of Joseph Smith, therefore it must have come from God. First off, Book of Mormon, 500 pages long, over 500 pages, uh, 600 pages actually in the original printed edition, which did not have double columns on each page but we're talking about a vast number of words. And every now and again, you are actually going to come up with something that is memorable. At least I would hope that you would be able to come up with something that is memorable. Now, the Book of Mormon does have these elements in it. And I want to say that maybe Joseph Smith was inspired in some sense at some places in coming up with things. I don't think it's fair to give credit to the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith when it is borrowing from the New Testament and say that's an example of the Book of Mormon being inspirational and that Joseph Smith could not have done that because obviously he could. All he has to do is look over at the Bible and incorporate a paraphrase. But he wants to prove this even further by saying that his wife Emma said he could not write a well-worded letter. Okay, This comes from a statement by Emma, 1879. It's right before she passes away. She's doing this in recollection of Joseph Smith. They got married in 1827. This is over 50 years later that she is remembering Joseph Smith as not being able to write a well-worded letter. Okay, first off. She's remembering this in such a way as to try and make the miracle greater in her mind, not consciously, necessarily, perhaps unconsciously. It is also in the same document that she denies that Joseph Smith ever practiced polygamy, which is in complete contradiction to the facts, as accepted by most historians, that Joseph Smith did, in fact, practice polygamy. So we've got to question her credibility at this point. She seems to want to paint Joseph Smith in a very uh, favorable light. And saying he could not dictate, I thought she said dictate, but he's quoting her as saying, right, a well-worded letter falls along with that. He couldn't write or dictate a well-worded letter. How on earth could he come up with the Book of Mormon? Now, the Book of Mormon is a remarkable achievement. I'm not going to claim different than that. But if you look at the Doctrine and Covenants bill, you will see that. The first revelations given in the Doctrine and Covenants from Revelation section 2 all the way up to section 19 were all given prior to the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And it appears that Joseph Smith was able to dictate or write, in this case dictate, rather well-worded revelations. Now you could say, well, that came from God and the other stuff is Joseph Smith acting on his own. But there are actually a number of letters that are contained in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, either dictated or written by Joseph Smith, which tend to show that uh, Emma's recollection is not necessarily exactly accurate. He actually was quite able to dictate and write relatively, I would say, well-written letters, at least as well-written as the original edition of the Book of Mormon was, with its somewhat stilted and sometimes colloquial English.
1: Yeah, I would simply add, the church, again, wants to have a play on words. They want to say Joseph isn't good at writing. And on some level, I'll 100% agree. His spelling is not great. His punctuation isn't great. It certainly has a frontier uh, way of, of accomplishing those two things. That said, to say that he is incapable of of writing uh, or dictation let's say that to say he's incapable of dictating uh, incredible ideas isn't fair. So let me use an example from the church history department. Mark Ashurst McGee, who is a historian with the church history department, uh, contributed to an article on the Deseret News that was titled Scribes Recorded Prophets Crooked and Broken Language. Now, here's the phrase from Joseph Smith dictating to William W. Phelps. This was in 1832, just two years after the Book of Mormon is published. This is before Joseph Smith gets into uh, us knowing some of the things he's reading with the Book of Josephus and uh, Adam Clark's commentary and other things that you and I have commented on that begin to add a depth to Joseph Smith's knowledge and his language. We go back to 1832, and he dictates to William W. Phelps. He says, this is Phelps writing down, but this is Joseph Smith dictating. O Lord God, deliver us from this prison, almost as it were, of paper, pen, and ink, and of a crooked, broken, scattered, and imperfect language. That phrasing is beautiful, poetic. There is a richness in, in that dictation. As you point out... If we go back to the late 1820s and up to the early 1830s, while Joseph Smith is probably agreed not a great writer, I think it is completely unfair to say that he cannot dictate rich, comprehensive ideas because there are a ton of documentation both in his own letters to his wife and others in documents that he is dictating to his scribes as well as in the early revelations of the church that impose that Joseph Smith is able to convey rich and comprehensive ideas. We have to stop saying this thing because it simply isn't true.
0: Right, and that is one of my favorite passages from Joseph Smith, the one that you quoted. I first encountered it when I was reading Rough Stone Rolling back in 2005. The year is I consider that to be beautiful. I consider that passage to be inspired, and I would consider it to be scripture.
1: Yeah, and I'll even add this. So does Mark Ashurst McGee. Mark Ashurst McGee, quote, that's great writing. Now, while Phelps wrote it down, it's Joseph's idea. It's the church history department saying Joseph Smith is more than adequate at conveying rich and comprehensive ideas, Again, it's not you and me. It's not just critics of the church. It is the church itself that agrees with that. So Elder Collister is saying something that Mark Ashurst McGee disagrees with.
0: Right, and I think that what I'm understanding you to be saying is that we have instances of Joseph Smith in his own writings which were not related to Scripture, coming forth with ideas and concepts like the one that you quoted from that 1832 letter that are equal to if not surpassing anything in the Book of Mormon. So we know Joseph Smith was able to produce this. Therefore, it should not surprise us that much, or at least as much as Elder Collister seems to be surprised, that similar substantive ideas and inspirational ideas occur in the text of the Book of Mormon. Is that what you're getting at, Bill?
1: Yeah. In this instance, Joseph Joseph Smith is pleading to God to help him with his weakness in language. And the way he articulates that plea is beautifully rich in language. In other words, there's some irony there. Also, we should note, Elder Collister is playing on this idea that to come up with just a few really cool thoughts is impressive. I'm going to tell you, RFM, I am a voracious reader and listener still to various uh, books and podcasts and uh, even books on Audible. When I listen to inspiring books and I could pull out my Audible library and I could read off a dozen of them. In those books, I, and I'll give one example, The Fifth Agreement by Michael or Miguel Ruiz. If you read that book, you and if you highlight things that inspire you, you'll highlight 150 quotes in that book. To say that a human being can't come up with inspiring ideas more than one or two in his lifetime is ridiculous. And it's another false thing we have to stop
0: saying. I agree with you. and And Bill... Uh, I think that we're probably going to have to do two parts to this podcast. I apologize. We've got half an hour remaining before we must shut down. So if I could, I would like to expatiate a little bit more about this idea of scriptural text and how Elder Collister says that, you know, we would be happy if we could come up with two or three quotes that people after us would remember and would think were impressive enough to memorize in this book that I have which contains quotes. When I'm reading along and reading great thoughts of other people, sometimes thoughts come to my mind as well. And I will write them down. Maybe I'm not reading at this time, but I'm pondering. I'll have ideas and I'll jot some of my ideas down along with these ideas of great authors. I have got so many quotations in here that have struck me. Let me just give you one from Henry David Thoreau, okay? I'm still looking for the one for me because they're interspersed, right? But here's one from uh, Henry David Thoreau from Walden, page 91 in my version. It says, God himself culminates in the present moment and will never be more divine in the lapse of all the ages. When something's really powerful like that, I usually have to read it twice and more. God himself culminates in the present moment and will never be more divine in the lapse of all the ages. That struck me as very powerful. I don't know how it strikes you, Bill, but I'm playing for time as I try and find this other thing that I'm looking for that I wrote down. Who's this
1: Henry David Thoreau guy? Did he only write one or two things that were inspiring? (laughs) And just to take it a step further, like I've... Like, I'm a nobody, RFM, and yet I've had posts on Facebook or things where I've written commentary where I've gotten a hundred people to go like, wow, that was really, really well put, Bill. You really took uh, the the thought that's going on in our community and you expressed it in beautiful language. Like, we're all capable of that. We have to stop putting what Joseph produced on a pedestal in a way that isn't fair to what all of us are capable of accomplishing. Now, I'll grant, in terms of Joseph taking all of the various sources and compiling them into one coherent story, I am still in awe and amazed at what he did. But what he took and, and put together, I'm not as impressed with. I think most human beings can take 20% of the King James Bible and use it, and that's just a straight taking it from one place and putting it to the other i think that you can have some really creative ideas that you may be borrowed from ministers in your area there is other concepts from stories from his childhood and and i think it's not fair to say like oh look how awesome ether 1227 is oh look how awesome second nephi chapter 30 it like the moment we say joseph smith isn't capable and neither is you and i it's not real Because us human beings are producing that kind of stuff if we're writing, if we're thinking, if we have intelligence. Us human beings are coming up with that stuff actually pretty regularly.
0: Right. And I will tell you, I I had to laugh long and loud about your question about Henry David Thoreau. And is that the only thing he wrote? Well, I actually read the book Walden. A number of years ago, and I was marking all these wonderful passages, and I was kind of surprised at how many famous things he said and how many things touched me. But you know, the other side of that is that this book is actually very boring. It's about, you know, uh, Henry David Thoreau going out to live at a pond for a winter by himself and just becoming one with nature and all this sort of stuff. It's Walden's Pond, right? So He talks about planting seeds, planting gardens, all the meticulous and dry ins and outs of an existence like that. And what you end up having is at least 90% of a book that is dry and boring, but interspersed in that narrative are these jewels of insights that he came to and that he wrote down. So even in Walden, even with Henry David Thoreau, You have to go a long way before you come up with these jewels. Now, when you come up to the jewels, they're worth coming upon, I believe. I think it's worth the effort. But in a similar way, if you look at the Book of Mormon, and of course, Henry David Thoreau and Joseph Smith were contemporaries, if you look at the Book of Mormon, you have a similar thing. You may have some jewels there. They may not be as good as Thoreau. It depends upon your point of view. They may be better. You might think they're better. They might resonate more with you. But the fact is, you have to go through a lot of dry stuff in order to Find these jewels.
1: Yeah, and I think that when you look at people like uh, even secular people today, Sam Harris, uh, for example, when I read uh, his book *Waking Up*, I there are a multitude of quotes in there that I'm deeply impressed with and I find inspiring. Like again, any intelligent human being who is uh, putting a lot of thought and energy into uh, a topic especially topics around development and spirituality, Uh, there are a ton of gurus out there and others who come up with quotes that people go like, wow, that was deep. Wow, that was rich. Wow, that was impressive. Like almost, I think, all human beings who are putting effort into thinking through ideas and putting those ideas either into uh, audible form or putting them into print come up with things that others are impressed with.
0: Right. And here's the other thing that I've got to mention is that um, Elder Callister talks about Joseph Smith dictating the Book of Mormon. He quotes Emma. By the way, I did find the quote from Emma. And she says, Joseph Smith could neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter, let alone dictate a book like the Book of Mormon. So dictation was in there. I did remember that part correctly.
1: Why do you think Collister leaves that out? He seems to intentionally leave out that part. Um, I don't know, actually. Do do you have an idea? No, I don't. So Emma is saying he couldn't write or dictate. Elder Collister tells us that Emma says he couldn't write a coherent letter. He seems to leave out the dictate. Uh, Again, I think the evidence says Joseph Smith could absolutely dictate uh, rich and thoughtful and comprehensive ideas um maybe, maybe not as coherent. I don't I don't know. I'd love to have some examples of that uh, because everything I see from Joseph shows that, yeah, he couldn't spell. Yeah, he had a frontier way of of, of speaking and in that kind of uh, spelling and grammar. But I certainly do not see any level of dumbness or idiocy uh, to his
0: to his language. And to his uh, ability to convey thoughts and ideas. Right. And so Elder Collister quotes Emma to the same effect that dictating the Book of Mormon was something that was beyond anybody's ability, therefore definitely beyond Joseph Smith's ability. And this is another uh, logical fallacy that sometimes I fall into and I try not to, which is I am always very tempted to judge others by my own yardstick. In other words, if I would feel a certain way under certain circumstances, then I would expect somebody else to feel and even act a certain way under the same circumstances. But you know something? Different people are different. Different people respond differently. Different people act differently than I do. And believe it or not, Bill, some people are smarter than I am. Some people are more athletic than I am. Some people can do things that I can't do. In fact, I think probably everybody can do at least one thing, if not more things, than I can do. Everybody knows at least one thing, if not more things, that I don't know. So Here's an example. I used to run cross country. I used to be in training. Try as I might, I could never run a four-minute mile, okay? Now maybe a five-minute mile, I never even really got close to a four-minute mile. But if I were to say, because I cannot run a four minute mile, even when I was in training and running every day for cross country, that means nobody in the world could run a four minute mile, well, I would be wrong. I would be judging everybody else by my own abilities. And that's the problem, I think, that Elder Collister falls into here. Now dictating the Book of Mormon is a remarkable feat, is something that I probably could not do. I've never tried it. But it's probably something that I could not do. I think it's probably something that most people could not do. But to say that because most people could not do it and I could not do it, that therefore means that nobody could do it in general and Joseph Smith could not do it specifically. That runs into the problem of judging everybody else by my own yardstick. I think that's a a fallacious argument in the sense that it is not logical. It also fails to take in
1: other reasonable ways to understand the data. And here's what I mean. We have the 116 pages they are lost. We have no idea what's on them. Uh, we have very faint glimpses of possibilities of what might be on those pages. We don't know the dictation style on those pages. But if Joseph Smith is, for, for just the sake of this conversation, is writing the Book of Mormon himself and God is not really involved... I would want to posit here that just like the girl with bad handwriting, when we practice something over and over, in other words, I may not be good at dictating either, RFM, but I'm willing to bet if I were given six months of practicing dictating stories to somebody that I would be much, much better on the back end of it. And we ought to recognize that while the 116 pages in some shape or form could be easily seen as Joseph practicing, like we don't know what that looked like, and those 116 pages get done, they go much slower, they're more tedious. But through that effort, Joseph could have deeply improved at dictation and opened up pathways in his brain that allowed him to be much more efficient at it. And so when the next opportunity comes around it's much more efficient and much more well done. We don't we don't ever take into account the timeline of when things get started, how much time he's working on them, how much time he has to think about ideas, the fact that he does have opportunities to practice and those areas of practice, we don't we no longer have access to to be able to see what those look like. And so I think when we recognize that people when Trying something that we often think they can't do. I had a friend recently who ran 314 miles in eight days. Now, a marathon is 26, I think, 0.2 miles, something like that. He ran more than that every day for eight days. In my mind, before I heard he was going to do that, I would have told you that's impossible. Like who could run more than a marathon eight days in a row? And he did it. So I think sometimes we think things are impossible, but as people practice and put their mind to something, they end up creating within their mind or within their body
0: the ability to go further than the rest of us thought they could even go. So all, all very, very good points. And that's a good example of that. So just because somebody does something that is remarkable and beyond what we could do, beyond what we even would think that somebody could do, does not mean that somebody can't do it because there are example after example of people who do just that. Taking that and applying it to Joseph Smith, that could be just another case of a similar thing. Also, I like how you talked about the 116 pages and how that could have served as a way of practicing this dictation of scriptural texts in the manner that the rest of the Book of Mormon was subsequently dictated. This almost sounds Like the story that Elder Callister is telling about his daughter who did so badly in handwriting but then practiced it every day for a number of years or 116 pages worth maybe and then ended up being much better at it. In fact, so good that she could win an award from her school.
1: Yeah, the more I write, the more I think, the more I lean into doing something generally speaking, all of us get better at that thing. Why would we not expect Joseph Smith, as he's working through dictating things, the 116 pages, to not be really good at dictating things by the end of that?
0: I think that that's, that's a really good point. By the way, I have found a couple of things that I wrote in my little book of quotations. Are you ready for these, Bill? You've got a couple of really good ideas on
1: paper. Oh my goodness, this sounds impossible. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I will have to let you in the audience judge as to how good they are. But um, there, there was one thing that I wrote in response to the frequently heard phrase in the church that we need to apply the atonement in our life. And I have grown to sort of resist that phrasing of the atonement because it sounds sort of like we're putting a band-aid on a wound or ointment on some affected part of the body. When I see the atonement and at least my relationship with the atonement as something that is much more substantial than simply out, I get an owie, I get an injury, I apply a band-aid to it. So this was done in response to that idea. And I probably wrote it in church. I even dated it February 16th, 2014. So here we go. You ready? Drum roll, please. We do not apply the atonement to our lives any more than we apply the ocean to our body when we swim in it, any more than we apply the air to our lungs when we breathe it, or apply the sun to our skin when we bask in it.
1: Look at that. That feels profound. It sounds profound. And, and yet you are supposed to be incapable of creating more than one or two of those in a lifetime.
0: Well, thank you. That's one. Here's another one. And this one I really, really like. You know, I wrote these a number of years ago. I don't go back over it very often. I pulled this out and blew the dust off. And I really like this one because I had forgotten this. This has to do with the idea that Bruce R. McConkie taught about obedience being the first law of heaven. And it's a response to that as well. This was from April 12th, 2015. Here we go. Obedience is not the first law of heaven. Compassion and love are. Many point to the example of Jesus in the New Testament as one who did the will of his father regardless of the circumstance. But there is an exception to that rule. Quote, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Unquote. Matthew 15, 24. Here in this story, love trumps obedience, for Jesus violates his commission in order to heal the daughter of the Canaanite woman. And that's Matthew 15, 21 through 28. In other words, we've got a story there where Jesus heals the daughter of a Canaanite woman, someone who's outside. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. He states it's his commission from God only to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But in the middle of the story where he quotes his commission from God, he violates that commission in the name of compassion and love. So that's why I say obedience is not the first law of heaven. Compassion and love are.
1: Yeah, again, um, putting ideas on paper, I, I think those two things are both profound, but I think all of us are capable of that. Those are just two. You you got out some book that you've written in, and you flip through a few pages, and you find two of them. If we go through all the pages of that book, I bet you have 10 or 15 of them, maybe more. If we pick other things that you've written in other places, I know that you've done uh, projects before, both audio, that people deeply appreciate, where you've said profound things, as well as written things that you've worked on in the past, where people have praised for saying profound things. I I think it's silly to say that most human beings, and maybe... But then those aren't the the human beings who are really thinking through or trying to put their thoughts on paper and trying to get some kind of depth in a subject. For anybody who's doing deep work on any topic, almost all of those people come up with a multitude of profound things uh, that they're creating through their writing and their speech.
0: That's really, really interesting. You know, there's a third one I just found. It starts, there once was a man from Nantucket. (laughs)
1: Uh, uh, yeah, let's let's leave that one unsaid for this episode. But yeah, I, I would love to hear that one off the air.
0: They can't all be winners.
1: <laughs> I, sometimes even a good joke, I think, is just as creative as a profound, inspiring thought.
0: <laughs> well, I tell you what, we're halfway through the five-minute fireside, and we're clocking in at going on two hours now. It'll probably be around an hour and a half once it's edited. So... Um, We've got more to talk about, and we're going to get into the subject of magic. By magic, I mean ledger domain prestidigitation. Prestidi- <laughs> I can't even say it. By magic, I mean ledger domain prestidigitation. Something that I have some experience in. How it applies to what it is that Elder Callister is going to talk about in the rest of his fireside, as well as ESP and probabilities and statistics. So I think that that is going to help illuminate what it is he talks about. It'll probably take another hour or an hour and a half. We'll have to save that for part two. What do you think, Bill?
1: Yeah, let's, uh, let's pick this up uh, soon, and let's, uh, let's dive into the second half of
0: his five-minute fireside that went long, and now we've even taken it even longer. Absolutely. Okay, so until next time, until we meet again, Bill, this is Radio Free Mormon. And Bill Real. Signing off the air.